I know that looking around, we've got some who are out of town with this long holiday weekend, but we're glad that you're here. And I hope the time we spend here together will be strengthening and uplifting, and we'll all leave here having been built up this morning. I mentioned that this is a holiday weekend. Tomorrow is, of course, Memorial Day. And Memorial Day seems to be one of those holidays that people don't give too much thought to, beyond it being an occasion for a three-day weekend. As one veteran complained about younger people, he said they have, quote, a tendency to forget the purpose of Memorial Day and make it a day for games, races, and revelry instead of a day of memory and tears. He said that in 1913. That's a Civil War veteran. Some things never change. But often, Memorial Day is thought of as the beginning of summer. I've seen news stories about that over this past week, your summer plans as Memorial Day is coming upon us, or else it's conflated with Veterans Day, and we think about those in the military in general. But in fact, Memorial Day is intended to remember those who died while serving in the armed forces. Its origins are debated They're somewhat mysterious, but it seems to have begun somewhere close to the end of the Civil War with the practice of placing flowers on the graves of those who'd been killed. And within a few years after the end of the war, the practice had spread north and south, and it was known as Decoration Day. After World War I, it became a national holiday dedicated to those who made the ultimate sacrifice. And I mention all that because... As Christians, we can and should remember what the Hebrews writer calls the great cloud of witnesses. There are those that we can think of who suffer the loss of prestige, of property, even of their lives. They paid that ultimate sacrifice on account of their Christian faith. We should remember them, we should honor them, and I think we can learn a great deal from the experiences of those earliest Christians. One of those who contributed to the persecution of the early church was a fellow named Saul of Tarsus. This is a story that most of us will be familiar with. But after Saul encountered the risen Lord on the Damascus road, he changed He became a Christian. In fact, he was a messenger specifically chosen by Jesus to go and to carry the gospel. That persecution that Saul had helped orchestrate had actually caused the church to spread out of Jerusalem. It had gone throughout Palestine and beyond. And some disciples had reached and had planted a a church in the city of Antioch, which was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. A preacher named Barnabas went and got Saul And together they worked in Antioch, and they had some great success there for a time. On Acts chapter 13, where I want us to pick up our story together this morning, in Acts 13 we find Paul, as Luke begins to refer to him now rather than Saul, setting out from Antioch with Barnabas on the first leg of what's been known as his first missionary journey. And they go, first of all, to Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home territory. And then they sail across to Perga and Pamphylia, and finally they make it to Antioch, a different Antioch. This is Antioch in Pisidia. 
Paul enters the synagogue there. He preaches Jesus as this Savior whom God has promised, and the audience enthusiastically receives that. This is uh, Acts 13, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So everything seems to be going really well. But it's just here that Paul encounters the first real resistance he faces on this mission trip. The next Sabbath, a week later, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The end result of all this Jewish resistance is that Paul is driven out of town. In verse number 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So they're in Iconium, just down the road. And here, pretty much the same thing happens in Chapter 14, verse 1, at Iconium, they entered together into the synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. There's a favorable response. Before then, those unbelieving Jews turn against him again. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And in verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So Paul's in Lystra now, and here he heals a lame man, and that causes great acclaim from the citizens, and there's a big audience gathered, and Paul, as he usually does, he uses that as an opportunity to preach the gospel. But trouble emerges again in verse 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, the two places he'd just been. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Fortunately, Paul survives, and he goes on down the road to Derby. And it's here that we find the remarkable statement that's our text that Cameron read for us a few moments ago. We want to focus on this this morning. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul has been through repeated persecutions on this journey. That's what we've seen. He was driven out of Antioch. He was driven from Iconium and narrowly avoided being stoned. Then in Lystra, he actually was stoned and was left there for dead. You would think that at this point, Paul would be pretty discouraged. I've known of preachers who encountered much less resistance than that, and they became pretty discouraged in their work. You'd think if you've got Jews following you around from place to place, and they even stone you and try to kill you, that you'd be pretty down about things. But it's actually just the opposite. Paul is the one who's encouraging and strengthening the disciples. And the way that he goes about doing that is remarkable. 
to emphasize here in verse number 22, he strengthened them, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I read a story about a man who went to the doctor complaining that he thought his wife was losing her hearing and she didn't really want to face it. So he was wondering what he could do about it. And the doctor said, find some time when she's preoccupied with something else. Say in the kitchen, doing the dishes, she's got her back to you. Stand a few feet away and say something to her. And if she doesn't hear you, move a little bit closer and then so on and so forth. And we'll try to see what we can do to address it. So he saw her there one evening in the kitchen preparing dinner. And he stood about 15 feet behind her. And he said, honey, what's for dinner? No response. So he moved up to about 10 feet. He said it again. He moved to five feet. He asked her again in that normal voice. No, no response. Finally, he got right up behind her, and, she, and he said, Honey, what's for supper? For the fourth time, it's chicken. <laughs> the point is that physical suffering is just one form of suffering that we face, but we all gradually begin to decay as we age, whether we realize it or not, like that poor unfortunate man in our story. Abby and I have been packing and moving this week, and I can tell you that I'm feeling it. I'm a little bit sore. I'm tired. I even feel like my brain is not working as well as it normally does this morning, like I'm not talking as clearly as I typically do. Wheels are turning slowly. And we haven't even done the big move yet. That's tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm sure you can all sympathize with that. There are things that you can't do as well now that you could when you were 30 or you were 40 or you were 50. A lot of you can identify with that. And, of course, we're just talking here about physical suffering. There are other forms of suffering that we all experience, some of them much more dire. There's mental suffering, emotional suffering, we all feel those sorts of griefs, that anguish in this life. Trials, suffering, tribulation, as Paul calls it in our text, whatever you want to call it, each of us has to deal with it in life, and it's something that at times we struggle mightily with. I even think of a hymn we often sing that references this, the way our hymns teach us, tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long, while there are others living about us Never molested, though in the wrong. The last verse, when death is come and taken our loved ones, it leaves our homes so lonely and drear. Then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year. That problem of suffering or problem of evil is something that is almost incomprehensible to many of us. So much so that some give it as a reason for doubting the very existence of God. There's even a whole book of the Bible that's devoted essentially with grappling with this problem, the book of Job. How could an omnipotent, loving God allow those terrible things to happen to Job? Job's friends assume that if you're righteous, you're going to be blessed without exception. And if you sin, you're going to be cursed. And so since Job is suffering greatly, Job must be a great sinner. Job, on the other hand, knows he hasn't sinned in any way like that. And so he wonders why God is allowing these things to happen to him. 
And we can probably identify with both of those positions depending on who's doing the suffering in our lives. We probably experience both of those things. It's notable then that Paul doesn't demonstrate that same negative attitude towards suffering that we typically have. Paul accepts it as an unfortunate but inevitable part of living in this fallen world. Consider what he writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse number 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies." Trials in this life are going to come whether we want them or not, whether we're ready for them or not. It's the common lot of everyone, even of the whole corrupted creation, Paul says. But I want you to notice in particular in our text, Paul isn't dealing with suffering in the abstract. He's not talking here just about the difficult experiences we all face in life, whether it's that loss of hearing, or whether it's the sore joints from moving, or whether it's the heartache and the despair and the grief that we feel, whatever it may be. He speaks here specifically about the suffering we must endure as Christians. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, he says. There are special trials that accompany being a follower of Christ. And we have to be ready to accept those, Paul says. That's part of the deal. It's non-negotiable. Through those things, we must enter the kingdom of God. And it's important for us to remember that Paul doesn't tell us this as someone who's never experienced any of these hardships. This isn't some fellow up in his ivory tower who's talking theoretically here, well, yes, suffering is just a part of life. No, Paul lived it. Paul definitely dealt with these hardships. This is the personal experience of someone who has known some extreme trials. We saw those earlier, driven out of Antioch and Iconium and stoned there in Lystra. And I picked up our story after he was already run out of Damascus and then run out of Jerusalem. And that only scratches the surface of Paul's suffering as a Christian. This first missionary journey, what we're reading about in Acts 13 and 14, that occurred sometime in the mid-40s of the first century. Not only that, Acts doesn't actually tell us about every single thing that happened to Paul. There are some things that he faced in life that aren't recorded there, but let's fast forward a decade from the mid-40s to when he writes the second letter to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and listen to him... uh, list some of these things he's faced. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul suffered a great deal. And then on top of that, as Acts records after the writing of this letter and towards the end of the book, Paul spends two years in prison unjustly in Caesarea. Then he goes to Rome as a prisoner, by the way, suffering one more shipwreck along the way. And then he spends two more years in prison in Rome. According to tradition, he's released, but he's arrested again a couple of years later, tried and executed. Paul is one who gave that ultimate sacrifice that we're talking about for the faith. Paul says it's necessary to pass through those many tribulations in order to enter the kingdom of God. And Paul knew what he was talking about. He passed through a great many of them himself. But we might be tempted to wonder here at this point, is is this just a man trying to, to justify his own existence? You know, Paul suffered a great deal. Is he just trying to make sense of his life? To try to prove to himself that it wasn't a mistake to follow Jesus, but no, it's, it's all been worth it? No. No, that's not what, what's going on here at all. And in fact, what I think is most remarkable about Paul and the suffering he endures, he chose this life. You go back to Acts chapter 9, that conversion story that we mentioned in passing. We find that Paul was told in advance that this was part of the deal. This was what he was going to endure if he followed Jesus. Acts 9 and verse number 15, Jesus says to the preacher Ananias who's going to visit Paul, he says, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul chose voluntarily to follow Jesus, and he knew what was at stake. He knew what he was going to face if he walked down that road, and he gladly accepted it on behalf of the Lord. And what great things did Paul give up? Uh, Look at Philippians chapter 3 where he lists them off here. He says in verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul has a number of attributes here by birth. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. That is, he had faithful parents. He's an Israelite by birth. He's not a proselyte. He was born into God's people. He has an illustrious lineage because he's a member of the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that gave Israel its first king, also named Saul, probably the fellow he was named after. And he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means he speaks the language which... Many people in the first century didn't. 
And then on top of those things he had by birth, by his family background, he has his own attainments. He's a Pharisee, the strict keepers of the law. And in fact, if you remember, Paul studied under the rabbi Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the first century. Paul's a persecutor of the church. That demonstrates his zeal against the enemies of God. He sums it up this way in Galatians chapter 1, beginning verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's blameless under the law. That means that he kept its statutes. Not that he was sinless, but whenever he stepped out of line, he made the corrections that were stipulated in the law. So in other words, Paul is a a rising star here. He's got a promising career among the Jewish people. And he gave all of that up for a life of beatings and shipwreck and imprisonment and ultimately of martyrdom. He paid that ultimate sacrifice. And the question, when we think about it, big picture is, why? Why was Paul willing to give up that promising future as a Jewish lawyer to suffer all of this for Christ? Well, he might have said, the way that James, the brother of Jesus, said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what James writes in James 1, verses 3 and 4. He might have seen the example of Job and that God's, the suffering that Job experienced caused Job's faith to grow, to trust in God and his infinite wisdom. Now that I see you, I realize that the questions I asked were out of bounds and I'm comforted in dust and ashes. Or he might have said, like Peter, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Those are all true biblical ideas, and they all point us to positive qualities that can emerge through our suffering, even if we can't pinpoint any individual one of them in our own specific cases at any time. But if you ask Paul why he was willing to suffer, I think there's a passage in Colossians that points us to the answer. Chapter 1, verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul says he takes on this suffering. He rejoices in it, in fact, for the sake of the church. Just like Jesus identified with the church, with his people, when he encountered Paul. Remember this on that Damascus road? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now, Jesus wasn't being directly persecuted. His people were. But when you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. Just as Jesus identified with the suffering of his people, so too Paul identifies with Jesus in the suffering that he's willing to undertake on behalf of Christ's people. I think we see a similar point from the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. 
He writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's why Paul could encourage the disciples with this message. And that's why he says it's necessary to pass through these tribulations to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus died. Jesus suffered and died so that he might gather a people so that he might create the church, that he purchased with his own blood, as Paul says in Acts 20. That means that suffering as a Christian is to emulate Jesus in the deepest sense. And that should prompt a question for us this morning as we close. This is what you need to take home with you or what you need to think about from this lesson. What, if anything, have I suffered for Christ? What, if anything, have I given up or am I willing to give up for him? Paul gave up that life as a rising star among the Pharisees in exchange for all those hardships we mentioned. And he's far from alone in that. That cloud of witnesses, those earliest Christians we need to remember, just up to that point in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Peter has been imprisoned, the apostles have been beaten, Stephen and James have been killed on account of the faith. Now, I don't imagine that any of us here in this room today is likely to ever be called to give up their lives for the cause of Christ. And we should be thankful for that. There are still parts of this world where you might be killed because you're a Christian. And fortunately, thank God, we don't deal with that in this country. But that doesn't mean that living as a Christian should be painless. You might be exposed to ridicule. You might have to deal with an internal battle as, as your fleshly nature wars against the Spirit of God here within you. We ought to be different from the world. And that difference should be visible. It should be tangible, discernible. People should see that we're different. And being different is never easy. Paul says that it's necessary for us to pass through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said that if we're going to follow him, we'll take up the cross to do it. Discipleship should not be easy. And if you think it's easy, and your life as a Christian is easy, then maybe... Just maybe you're not all that you should be as a Christian. Because that visible difference should be causing some tension with the world around you.
And we might need to ask ourselves, if that's not the case, why it's not. Do I need to make changes this morning? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, God doesn't promise you a life of ease. What He does promise is that He'll recreate you in His image. He'll empower you through His Spirit to do His work in this world. And that ultimately He'll take you home to be with Him when this life is over. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you haven't been what you need to be, and you need to make changes. Whatever your need may be this morning, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.